Amen. Just something about those old songs, aren't there? That they're just beautiful. Can't beat it. That's beautiful. Thank you, praise team, for that today. We appreciate that so much. Take your Bibles, if you will, uh, to Mark chapter 15 today. Mark chapter 15. So glad to have you here if you're visiting with us, uh, especially you who are with the Academy. Thank you for coming today. And uh, what a wonderful job those kids did. And just wonderful to see that. So proud of the folks who are invested in our teaching and our administration and just a wonderful way God certainly has blessed us over these years. It's been a wonderful thing. And Solomon has done just a wonderful job. He's, he's just one of the tops for it. And so we're so proud of him and everything that's happening there. Stand with me now. We're going to read God's Word. I'm going to read Mark 15, verse 42 to 47. I've entitled this message today, The Great Leveling. The Great Leveling. 42. And when evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent council member, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, and he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate wondered if he had died by this time, and summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he had already died. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. And when Joseph had brought a linen cloth and took him down, he wrapped him in the linen cloth and laid him in a tomb, which had been hewn out in a rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were looking on to see where he had been laid. You may be seated. What I want you to understand today is we must go through things in life. And it is how we behold them. It is how that we see them that determines how we feel about it. Again, it is how we see things, it is how we behold them that determines how we feel about it. Take, for example, the cross. Was it an execution or was it an offering? To the Romans, it was just an execution. That's how they saw it, an execution. Just another criminal another rabble-rouser, troublemaker, he needs to die. Pilate had no idea that he was putting the Lamb of God on a cross as a sacrifice. He just saw him as a criminal. That's how all Rome saw Jesus Christ, as just a criminal. And the disciples, all they saw it as was an execution. Their beloved leader is being executed on a cross. They didn't understand any more than that. They didn't see it as an offering. Matter of fact, they were depressed. They were upset. They all ran away. That's how they really viewed that event. Now, the truth of the matter is, the reality is that you have to understand Jesus Christ on the cross was not an execution. It was an offering. Now, we know that because we have more Scripture today to understand the truth of what was happening there. We see it as an offering. Hebrews said it. I went through the book of Hebrews, and I love that book. It said, Jesus Christ went into the Holy of Holies once for all, with Himself and by Himself. Now, that may not mean a whole lot to you, but He went with Himself and by Himself. Nobody walks into the Holy of Holies without a lamb. But he went with himself and by himself. In other words, he was the priest, 
but he was also the lamb. So, he was priest enough to be the offerer, but he was great enough to be the lamb. That's an incredible thought right there in and of itself. And so, what I want you to understand is, it's all in how you look at it. Do you look at it as execution and it's just another day in the life of a Roman? Or do you see it as an offering where he is both the priest and the lamb at the same time? See, it's how you see something. And that's what I'm trying to drive home to you today. How do you see it? How do you look at it? Let me put it into your terms. One man's misery is another man's miracle. One man's test is another man's testimony. It's all in how you look at it. It's all in how you look at it. And the truth of the matter is, you can't have a victory until you've been a victim. So one thing I want you to see as I get into this text is how are you looking at your life? Because the way you look at it is how you feel about it. Now, we don't want to forget this is the supporting cast around the cross. We've got Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus helped them. We know that from other passages in the Scripture. They are going to prepare the body of Jesus. But you also have these three women who on the morning of the resurrection went to the tomb to put spices into the tomb and wrap, continue to wrap the body of Jesus in restoration and in honor. So they walk through those cobblestone streets to go to Jesus. Now, why'd they do it? They do it for fame. They're pretty famous. They do it for fortune. They do it for money. Did they do it for a title? No, they didn't do it for anything. They did it because they loved him so. They loved him. You know, you learn that the older you get in life. That it's not so important the person you're with are they rich? Are they famous? Are they wise? What's important and what will be most important to you is do they love you so? Do they love you so? That's what you're going to want. I want to talk to you about this today. There are three powerful examples to reawaken your inner spirit on your journey with Jesus. Three powerful examples, all right? I want to jump right into these. These hadn't occurred to me until I studied uh, about them, okay? Number one, the first one is the female disciples. The female disciples, and I put in the notes there, faithfully remaining. Faithfully remaining. I say faithfully remaining because everybody else abandoned Jesus, except these three women. And there's something important about a woman's heart that goes beyond what a man will do. And I think that's why they're recorded there. They're the only set of disciples, let me say it more carefully, the three women are the only set of disciples that saw and witnessed his death, his burial, and his resurrection. They're the only three. They saw all three. 
That's, that's to be noted. You don't want to miss that. They're all females. Let me have you see that. Verse 40 says this. That's back just a couple of verses before that. There are also some women looking on from a distance, among whom, here they are, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Les, and Joseph, and Salome, or Salome. Some people say Salome, but Salome's good. Okay, so there's the three women. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less, and Joseph, and Salome. That's verse 40, okay? So they're at the cross. Verse 47 says, when Joseph of Arimathea prepared the body and buried it, it says in verse 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph were looking on to see where he had been laid. And then chapter 16, verse 1, and when the Sabbath passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might come and anoint him. There they are, the three key women of all the women, of all the women, these are the three. It says in chapter 16 that Mary Magdalene had seven demons cast out of her. By the way, if you ever have seven demons cast out of you, good chance you'll be loyal to the person who did it. She had seven demons cast out of her. Everywhere Jesus was, she wanted to be. Where'd she want to be? At his feet. At his feet. The second woman is Mary, the mother of Jesus. You say, why doesn't it just outright say it? Because the writer tells you through the book who that woman is. And if you want to just make a note of this, Mark chapter 6, verse 3. Listen to this now. Mark 6, 3, talking about Jesus. Is this man not the carpenter, the son of Mary, who has the brother of James and Joseph? So what Mark did is he kind of hid the fact that it's Mary, the mother of Jesus. And then the last one, Salome, or Salome, is the mother of James and John. So you got two moms, and you got a woman, a single lady, at the foot of the cross, at the burial, and at the resurrection. They saw it all. They were eyewitnesses to all three events. And because they were at his death and his burial, Jesus said, I'm coming to you, so show myself to you first. You why am I showing myself to you? You remain faithful. Everybody else took off. All the men, they, they took off. But you were faithful, and you remained that way. Now, several theologians on the work of the resurrection bring out this thought. The female disciples are the pipeline between the truth of the gospel and what happened at the resurrection. They are the pipeline between the truth of the gospel and what happened at the resurrection. The only way the world knew about the resurrection was through these women and their testimonies as eyewitnesses to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, which is absolutely amazing to try to think through in your life, okay? So they are the testimonies. Even further, the best apologist is probably N.T. Wright on this. These three women are or is one of the strongest evidences that the resurrection really happened. These three women are one of the strongest evidences that the resurrection really happened and it wasn't made up. Because if it was made up, a woman's testimony was not allowed as a witness in court in the first century in Jewish society. A woman could not give testimony to anything in Jewish society in court. 
Matter of fact, I just hate to break it to you if you're a lady here, but understand it. They were given a low status. Matter of fact, when they came back and saw the resurrection, they told all the men, the men didn't believe them. They believed not, the Bible says. And then they went and checked it out for themselves because they wouldn't take their witness. Now, what N.T. Wright says is if you're going to make up the resurrection, would you use the testimony of a woman? You'd use a high official. You'd use some kind of prominent man in society. But God chose three faithful women who witnessed the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to declare to the world, it really happened. I saw it with my own eyes. And that's how God wanted to do it. Where are the 12 men? Where are the 12 disciples? They all ran. They're wimps. They're wimps. It's, it's, it's incredible to see the strength of these women. I want to talk to you about the strength of a woman is a woman of substance. The strength of the women to push through the opposition of the mockers at the cross. That's my boy you're talking about. You ever see a mom come out for her boy? <laughs> Whew, go to some ball games, you'll see it. All right, opposition of mockers. They had to witness the horror of the crucifixion. There they were. I like to call them because this is the way the Bible wants you to understand it. The gender outsiders. The gender outsiders at the cross. Marginalized by society, but faithful. Thank God for this single lady and these two women, these two mothers. Single lady and two mothers at the cross. Okay, I don't mean to unnerve you, but this week I went back and watched the interview of James Dobson and Ted Bundy who murdered and raped countless women and was put in the electric chair. When that was going on, they asked several moms, if your child was going to be executed, would you want to attend? How, how many moms would just raise their hand and say, yeah, I'd go? Okay, several of your moms will go. Here's what this mom said. I'd be there holding his hand if I were allowed. And then here's what she said. It struck me. I'd say softly, I'm sorry. I'm sorry because chances are if he were being executed, it would be my fault in an indirect fashion. That's insightful. It would be my fault in an indirect fashion. I couldn't help but think of that song, The Day He Wore My Crown. He says, I'm the one to blame. I'm the one who put him there. I'm the reason he's on the cross. I taught him how to die, the song says. I caused all his pain. And I'm just telling you here, okay? The female disciples were faithfully remaining when everyone else abandoned Christ. 
Let's go on. Number two, I want to talk about the male disciples. The male disciples. I'm thinking of two specifically here. Fearlessly requesting. Fearlessly requesting. Now, we don't know about Nicodemus from the book of Mark. We know it from John 19. But Joseph of Arimathea wanted to get the body of Jesus. Okay? And Nicodemus helped him prepare the body of Jesus. We're told that later. Both of those two men were members of the Sanhedrin. They were of the council. That's what it says there, the Jerusalem council. So they were members of the Supreme Court of the day who did not vote for the death of Jesus. So there were two guys that we know did not vote at the vote when it said crucify Jesus. These two men of the 70 men said, no, I won't put my vote forward. They were prominent. They were wealthy. They were the elite of Israel. The Bible says Joseph was waiting for the kingdom of God. John 19 is even clearer. He was a sacred disciple for fear of the Jews. He didn't want to lose his job. He didn't want to lose his title. He didn't want to lose his eliteness. He didn't want to lose his position in town. So he was a secret disciple of Jesus Christ. But when Jesus died, when Jesus died, Joseph wanted to get the body of Jesus. And the Bible says there, he gathered courage. I just want you to see that. He gathered courage. Verse 43, he gathered up courage. You know why? Because he'd been a secret disciple his whole life. He was afraid to speak out, afraid to tell who he really was, afraid to tell people his story. He didn't want anybody to know. He just wanted to keep it all hidden. But he gathered courage at this moment. And he said, I'm going to get that body of Jesus. And he didn't care if he had to go to Pilate. And he went to Pilate and he said, I'm going to risk it all. I'm going to risk my position in the Supreme Court. I'm going to risk my position with Pilate because Pilate would be thinking, I just killed that man because of his teaching. And you're one of his followers? You're one of his followers? That's a risk. Joseph took a huge risk. Joseph didn't know if Rome would retaliate against him. He didn't know if the Jewish people and the Sanhedrin would retaliate against him. But he didn't care. He didn't care. He didn't care if he lost it all for Jesus. He didn't care. And so he becomes very bold, and he's no longer a secret disciple. He comes out in the open, and he says to Pilate, can I please, can I please have the body of Jesus? You, Joseph, you want the body? You're one of his disciples? You would follow this man to his death? Yes, I want the body of Jesus. And so Pilate delivers him. I want to say more about that later, but he, he delivers him. He gives him to Joseph. And then Joseph takes great pains to prepare the body of Jesus and to give Jesus a proper burial. Now, I want to tell you this, okay? Jesus, uh, back then, the Jews did not embalm like the Egyptians. The Egyptians embalm, and their embalming lasts thousands of years. But... The Jews didn't do it like that. They did much simpler. They would take spices and they would wrap them inside of the linens as they, walk, as they wrapped the body of Jesus. What was it? It was just a simple act of love. It's like the last thing you could do for somebody you really loved. It's quite a nasty thing too. I mean, you got a cadaver, a dead body torn apart. In its flesh. (sighs) 
And yet they did that. It was, must have been a very unpleasant thing to do. Now here's what I found. I was reading D.A. Carson's commentary on Matthew on this, and he said this, typically men did not prepare bodies for burial. It wasn't respectful. It wasn't respectful to do that. And so the, he goes on in his commentary, he says, so, so who did it? You know who did it? You know who prepared bodies in Jewish society in those days? Slaves and women. Now, respectable men would have never done this. But Joseph and Nicodemus said, we're going to do it. They didn't say to the women, hey, this is your job, you do it. They did it. They did it. Listen, I want you to get this in your heart and your head. Don Carson says it like this in his commentary on Matthew. He says this, this is the most masculine and most feminine thing that these two guys ever did in their life. What is the most masculine and most feminine thing you've ever done in your life? I love the way he says that. The gospel gave them both the courage to obtain the body of Jesus, but also the tenderness to prepare the body of Jesus. Tender and courage. Tender and courage. At one moment in time, they feel bold, and yet they're humbled at the same time. Now, here's the deal. Usually, people either feel bold and not humble, or they feel humble and not bold. That's usually how it goes with people. But really, in this case, they're both. Why? Because the work of Christ is going on in their hearts. They know they're completely accepted in Jesus Christ, and they come to this place where they can have boldness and humbleness. Let me just say it the way Carson says it. Femininity and masculinity at the same time. Some of you, some of you that's really tough to really get a hold of. Because you know how to be all man. But you know how to be feminine too as a man. I mean in a good way, okay? I mean in the right way. This is what's so hard in our society because we so react to what we see when somebody becomes totally feminine. We're... we're disgusted by it in a way that when we step away, we don't want anything to do with that. Nicodemus and Joseph, they're men with power. They're elite. And, and, and what you learn about men with power is they don't want to share it. They don't want to share it. To share your power as a man is to jeopardize it. Every man knows that. And so here's Joseph and Nicodemus with power, but they're attracted to Jesus. Before, they want to protect that power. They want to protect that position. They want to hide the fact that they're followers of Christ. They don't want to bring it out. They want to hide everything inside of them. But after the death of Jesus, now they don't care. I don't care if I lose my position. I don't care if I lose my power. This is who I really am. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I am committed to him with all my heart, I'll do anything. See, the gospel will do that to you. The gospel will change your attitude toward everything. No more male ego. Most men will think about their ego as the most important thing in their life. But Joseph, incredibly, is now identifying with this lower class of male Jews, and he's also identifying with these women. He's allowing them to take part in the burial. 
It's an amazing, it's an amazing thing. That's why I call this passage, I'm not sure I'm completely right here, but the great leveling. This is the great leveling of what Jesus Christ does. When we come to Jesus Christ, we come to him as babies. That's why Jesus said to Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. You've got to start out as a baby in this thing. Nicodemus was all confused. Can I go back into my mother's womb and be born twice? I, I don't know how you can do that. And Jesus said, you've got to be born again. You've got to be born again. In other words, you, you have got to come to a place in your life where you're not counting on any of your achievements, any of your works, any of the things you've accomplished in your life. You can't start the Christian life as a teenager. You can't start the Christian life as a young adult. If you're going to start the Christian life, you've got to start as a baby. You've got to start as a baby. You've got to be at the very bottom of what society classes of people. The baby. Jesus says, you've got to do that. Um, that's the work of grace. If, if God's grace is going to work in a man... He's going to deflate the head of that man and he's going to bring him down. He's going to deflate the head of that man and he's going to bring him down. Where's he going to bring him to? He's going to bring him to a baby. He's going to bring him to a baby. He deflates that big head in Christ. And here's the amazing thing about Christ. When you come to Christ and you get, you get centered on Christ, there's something about your ego that just poof. Just the big head goes down. You don't want to be who you think you want people to think you are. You don't want to be that anymore. You just, you just recognize that. You're humble. You still have boldness, but you're humble. It's, it's an incredible thing to try to get a hold of this. I don't even know if I can explain it quite right, but, but how about the people on the other side that only see their failures and how bad they are and how unworthy they are and the shame they feel that they don't want anybody to know about. They don't want anybody to know about some of the things that could be on the front page of the paper about themselves. No, don't put that out there about me. And so they're on the other spectrum, and God comes to them and says, I don't need to deflate your big head in Christ. I need to lift your head up. i got to bring you to the same level. Because you so beat yourself up, you so see yourself a certain way, you behold yourself a certain way, and that's why you feel the way you do about yourself, because you haven't let your head be lifted up. But the work of grace deflates the big head and lifts up the head that feels unworthy. That's the work of grace. Lowly, wretched, poor, shame, whatever. God deflates the big head and humbles it, and he lifts up the head that's lowly, feels unworthy, and he says, I save you all the same way, and you all start out at the same place. You're all level at the foot of the cross. You're all babies. You're all babies. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. All right, that's all I'm going to say about the men. Let me go on to the last one, the third one, the maker of all disciples, fully restoring. The maker of all disciples, fully restoring. What's amazing to me in this passage of Scripture is that Joseph of Arimathea is going to great pains for Jesus to have a proper burial. And what you see here is this progression from humiliation to exaltation. Now, here's what I want you to get, okay? To understand the maker of all disciples is he goes through this process to be humiliated by the cross, by his death, but then he goes through a process of exaltation. Okay? 
You can't have victory unless you've been a victim. I wish that would sink into some of your hearts. Okay, but, but so in, in, in this sense, he is saying that I'm taking him from a humiliation to exaltation. Most people would ask him, well, when was he exalted? You'd say, when he rose from the dead. And you'd be kind of right, but you really would be incorrect. That's the zenith of his exaltation. But the process of his exaltation actually began at the point of transition from the point of his burial. Because the whole thing shifts when Joseph Arimathea buries him. Because there was a prophecy 800 years before this in Isaiah 53, 9 that said he will have a grave assigned with the wicked, yet with the rich in his death. And now you see this shift in Scripture where he is buried in a rich man's tomb. He is going to be exalted. This is the beginning of the exaltation of Christ. Why was he done that? Because he had done no violence and he had, done, had no deceit in his mouth. That's the transition from humiliation to vindication. Now, that's one reason, okay? Let me give you the second, and I'm going to kind of tie this message together. All right, number two, the amazing thing is that Pilate even released the body, and that's a significant departure from the custom of crucifixion. They never released a crucified body. You will not find any records of people who've had their, somebody, a family member saying, hey, can I take the body down and bury him? No. What they did is they left the body on the cross for five to seven days to humiliate the body as it decomposed and it became a ghastly and grim fate so that everybody who walked in and out of the city would look at the decaying body on the cross and they'd say, don't mess with Rome. Don't mess with Rome. That's why they left it on the cross. And so it's highly unusual that Pilate would have given the body to Joseph of Arimathea because that was the custom. The second custom was after he was on the cross for five to seven days, then the body was taken off the cross, not given to the family, and it was deposited in the local garbage dump, which was called in their language Gehenna. We know that word as hell. Gehenna. And the body was taken to Gehenna, and then it was disposed of by an incinerator. It was incinerated and burned. No honorable death was allowed for anybody crucified. This is what's so amazing about this, is when Jesus speaks of hell, he uses the chief metaphor of Gehenna, the garbage dump, where the fire never goes out and the worm does not die. There's a constant supply of garbage that comes into this place, of people and garbage. It's a refuse. They're deposited there. And Jesus said, the worm never dies. You know what a worm is? It's a parasite that feeds off its host. So the worm never goes out because if it gets hungry, all it has to wait is just a little while before another body's thrown on the heap and incinerated. And then it eats off of that body. And that's how Jesus uses images to describe hell to us, which is ghastly to think about to throw it in the fire or the garbage dump would have shown no respect to the body of Jesus. No honor. So Jesus was not incinerated at the garbage dump. This has tremendous theological significance. He was honored with dignity and a sacredness to his body. 
his body. And he was fully restored from that body to a resurrected body. And then he wants to fully restore all those that will come to him in the same way. In humility, just as he was humbled on the cross. Okay, I'm going to just talk for about two to three minutes and I'm going to close out this sermon. This is by way of application now to your life. I have been asked over, I would say over 50 times in the last year, at least 50 times, text, email, phone calls, conversations just in passing. I'm asked this question and I'm going to go on record in this sermon. So it's on record so you know exactly how I feel and what I believe about this. People ask me, do you have to bury the remains of our, of our loved ones? Do we have to bury the remains of our loved ones? I've been asked, is there a law against cremation in the Bible? I've done about 20 sermons in the last four months. I don't know why. That's the most I've ever done in such a short period of time. 20 funerals. What did I say? Sermons? I said funerals. All right, I've done 20 funerals in the last three or four months. And some have been cremated. So some have asked me, some haven't asked me. But I just want to go on record for this. Because it is becoming more of an option of choice today. Here's what I say. As far as I know, okay, as far as I know, there is no prohibition that I can find anywhere in the Bible that says you are not allowed to cremate the remains of your loved ones or your own body. I know of no prohibition of cremation either in the Bible. There's no command I can find you must dispose of the body by burial. Now, the reason I said that, I'm going to be very clear here. The reason I said that is because I think whoever you are and whatever decision you make, you have some latitude when it comes to the Bible. However, however, by way of example, the Christians and the Jews for centuries, since the beginning of the Jewish religion, believed by virtue of creation that God created the body, the soul, and the spirit and pronounced a blessing not only on the soul, but on the body as well. It is good in its creation. We as Christians look forward to the final day for the resurrection of the body. The pagans in the first century did not see the body that way. They disposed of the body by putting a man on fire and incinerating him. Because pagans viewed the physical body of human beings as inherently wicked. It was your body that caused you all your problems. Even Plato and Socrates said that. They saw redemption as escape from the body. So just throw the body on the funeral fire is what they did in this period of time, even back before Christ. The Christians through history never disparaged the value of the physical body God gave to us. As a matter of fact, they saw redemption as salvation of the body. Not from the body, of the body. They saw the body being saved too one day. Now I want to be clear. I want to be very clear. If you cremate, you are not in violation of a direct command of the Bible. 
But I, for one, would not do it. I would not do it. Just in the strength of the implication of the evidence of biblical examples of everybody who had an honorable death, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Joseph said, get my bones out of Egypt. I wouldn't be caught dead there. He said, bring them up, put them in the cave of Machpelah with my ancestors. I want my bones honored. Moses was buried that way as well. So there is this consistent theme throughout the scriptures. Tenderly and with honor laid to rest. I'm going to be as honest as I can with you, okay? Again, you're not under law. You are free. You are free to decide what you're going to do with your loved ones or your own body. I'm just advising you not to. Not to do cremation. But it's not a law in the Scriptures. So you think it through. I wanted to best represent that. I see so much more cremation today, and it concerns me. So I wanted you to hear my position, and I want to go on record with you. But I would not tell you you're wrong or in sin to cremate. I think you have that freedom, and I must respect that. But ultimately, we see the example in how the body of Jesus was treated tenderly, with honor, and laid to rest. You're free. But it's true to me that God would not allow Jesus' body to suffer corruption even in his burial. So he was buried with the rich in honor. And that began the exaltation of Jesus Christ forever. Let's pray. Just as your head bows and eyes closed, I want to speak to you just for a moment. No one looking around. The praise team's going to come. We're going to sing the closing song here this morning. I, I, don't, I don't know where your heart is at this morning, but if there's never been a time where you've received the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, He can do one of two things for you. He can knock the pride out of you and deflate your head and say, you've got to come as a sinner and confess your sinfulness that your sin deserves judgment before a holy God. He will deflate your head. He will notch you down. Or if you already feel ashamed and already have done things that you know in your life make you feel unworthy in your spirit, then he will ultimately lift up your head. That's He does one of two things. He deflates our heads or he lifts our head up, whatever we need at the moment because there's a great leveling at the cross and if you're here today and you've never received the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior this is the great leveling opportunity to own this in your life and say I need Jesus as my Savior I need to be saved so I want to take just a moment if you're here and you'd say that's me my sin deserves judgment I need Jesus Christ as my Savior I want to be saved would you, would you just take a moment and lift up your hand and hold it up so I can see it just lift it right up. Hold it up so I see it. Just want to make sure. You lift it up, say, that's me. Yes. Yes, I see that one hand. Is there another that would say that? Other hands? Yes, I see that hand, ma'am. Is there another? 
man, I got I to gotta get this settled. He's got to lift me up or he's got to bring me down, but he's got to do something in my life. Okay, you put your hands up. I just want to take a moment. Make sure you have that opportunity right now to accept Christ. Just say, dear God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know there's nothing I can do to save myself. You died on a cross as the payment for my sin. I trust you as my Lord and Savior. Save me and help me to be the person you want me to be. I believe on the authority of God's word. You prayed that prayer. It came from your heart. I believe you're saved. It's a beautiful thing. I've watched in my own life, God's had to deflate the big head. Sometimes he's had to lift up my head. And I want to speak to everyone here today that knows Christ and they're walking with him. How would he deflate your head if he had to? To bring you down to that level of a baby. Humbled, bold, but humbled. How would he have to take you who feel unworthy, shame? And just take his hand and just put it under your, under your chin and lift your head up and say, you're going to be okay. You're more than you think. This is what I've done for you. It's such a beautiful thing. Father, I come before you at this moment. I recognize your spirit moving. I've asked in this prayer before I came to this pulpit that you would hide my flesh behind the cross. They would see you and be lifted up. Father, I lay that before you now and I ask your blessing over us now as we sing and celebrate and worship through this song. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. We're going to sing this song and celebrate. If there's still a need in your life, something that you have that you'd like prayed over or you want one of us to pray with you, there'll be a couple folks up at the front. You can go to them. They can pray with you. Or if you just want to spend time alone at the altar, of course, it's open for you as well. Let's sing together.